Hey everyone, welcome back to Digressions of the Fijian, where we are going to be reading Chapter 2 of Ratusukuna, Soldier, Statesman, Man of Two Worlds. If you're just joining us with Chapter 2, I would sincerely, sincerely ask that you start from Chapter 1 and we'll see you back at Chapter 2 when you've completed that. For those of you who have listened to Chapter 1, welcome back. He was born on 22nd April 1888 at Mbau in a house on the Yavu Tabunasivi, then moved at once to Yavu Valimbasanga with Ratundobi Verata lying buried beneath. The event was announced upon the lips of Vesi, poetic Fijian for the Lali, or slit drum, in the beat which signified the birth of a new Turangambale, chief of the noblest blood. His first ten days and nights were passed in the arms of his female kin, who never allowed him to touch the ground. The child was named Chosefa Lalambalavu, after his father's kinsman, the Tuidakau, ruling chief of the Kondrove province, who had been brought up by the current governor, Sir John Thurston. This was the man Ratudakumbau had styled Nakanavai, bayonet, spear point, or perhaps also simply stingray, the image being that where you found a school of fish, the Fijians, below you would find the ray, Thurston, protecting them from the sharks. A man who believed in personal rule through Fijian chiefly institutions and who knew how to use the strong hand, Thurston was something of a god in the personal pantheon of Ratumandraiwiwi's eldest son. The child's other names came from Bau. Vanali Ali Sukuna, fast sailing Sukuna, presumably after Ratudakumbau's son of that name, who is mentioned by Ratundeve Tomnivalu in his unpublished history of Mbau, though Vanali Ali could also refer to Ratumara Kapewai, vanishing mast. Josefa Lalambalavu Vanali Ali Sukuna called himself Lala Sukuna. Among close or presumptuous European friends, he passed as Joe. He would seldom have heard any personal name used directly to him as he grew into youth, passing between Bau, Lau, Dakonrove, and Ra as a young nobleman would travel in order to become familiar with his kin. Personal names were rarely used amongst Fijians at that time in addressing one another, and certainly not to men of rank. As he grew older, he witnessed the ceremonies of welcome performed when a Turangambale arrived at a chiefly village. Davi Kelekele first, the presentation of a tambua to him through his Matanivonua aboard ship. Then, in the Yangona circle ashore, men crawling forward to give the tama before presenting mats and young coconuts, and then the Sevu Sevu, formal presentation of a root of Yangona.
Then another tambour, the Lubani Tawake, in token of a wish that he would be pleased not to fly his war flag. Such elaborate rituals were not observed when he called upon the governor, Nakanawai, at the age of about six. He liked to recall it that day in Levuka, the old capital, scene of famous confrontations in the 1870s between white settlers and Thurston when he was chief secretary of Ratutakumbao's short-lived kingdom of Fiji. At Levuka lay Ratusukuna's grandmother, Andilo Lokumbo, one of the thousands who died in the 1875 measles epidemic. The population took over 30 years to recover from the loss of perhaps a fifth of all Fijians. Ratusukuna had first and had arrived and went to call formally in his best clothes, which included a sailor hat. I knew no English, but the governor was very kind to me, received me in state, spoke to me in Fijian, and asked about my father and mother. Within his family, that extended network in which cousins were brothers, aunts, mothers, and the preferred marriage was with a cross-cousin so as to concentrate the central power of the lineage, the child learned the deference due to seniors in his society. He addressed his father formally as Ratu and knew that he would be magically stricken by his father's kaukaua or power if he should touch the sacred head or indeed anything that belonged to his father, including food partially eaten. Vula was the word for it. His throat would swell. After touching any possession of a man of rank, the hands must be cleansed in Yangona. As his five siblings arrived, they were ranked beneath him. In society at large, similar principles regulated political relations too. Rank and kinship had ruled Fiji before session, before Ratu Thakumbau formally sent Queen Victoria the emblems of power, a fish hook symbolizing rights of the sea, Yangona for fruits of the land, a conch carrying the right to summon the people, a tanoa, Yangona bowl, 44 inches in diameter, implying precedence at the drinking, and a club. For the first nine years of Ratusukuna's life, similar principles were being followed in governing colonial Fiji too very properly followed according to Ratusukuna when he had seen the outside world but had come back willingly to enjoy his own. According to him, the Fijian administration was based on the Fijian social order. As he put it to the Legislative Council in February 1944, in over 30 years now spent in public administration, I have learned one lesson which I am sure is more important than anything else. And it is this, that a sound and life system of local government based on whatever is inherent and customary among the people to whom it is applied is the essential basis of any social progress of any kind. He was conditioned to that conclusion by his childhood in Ra, firstly through the relationship between his father, the Turanga or chiefs, and the Leonibanua, common people of the land, who all interacted within a tightly knit world of deference and mutual obligation seen through a child's eye, even though many of them did a lot of time for non-payment of taxes, and secondly, 
through the relationship between his father as Rocco and the central administration in Suva. In effect, two or three Europeans fluent in Fijian and tightly controlled by Nakenavai, who had brought Ratumanrewiwi into the service in the first place. With Rokos and Bulis accustomed to rule and the people ready to obey, said Ratusukuna looking back upon this world, the administration ran smoothly and there was happiness and contentment in spite of the decrease in the population due in all probability to the introduction of infectious disease. When he was supposed to be attending a summer school for administrative officers in Oxford during 1937, he preferred to watch a test match and visit friends, among them Nakenavai's daughter, Alice. He had nothing much to learn from Lord Lugard and the African brand of indirect rule, having witnessed his father's rule of Ra under her own. Lugard, anyway, largely owed his administrative principles to Sir Arthur Gordon, Thurston's patron, though at times also his pupil. In response to rule by legitimate leaders, godlike rulers of men accepted exile to distant islands for their sins, and muscular young rips knuckled under to incarceration at night in reed prisons, or at least did not, as a rule, roam too scandalously far away. There was no force except the armed native constabulary, a mere handful of men, and Fijian society remained intact. Much land, the best, had passed into European hands as a result of pre-session alienation. But the bulk remained the Fijians. Under a generous, calculated misreading of the deed of session by Gordon, the first resident governor, Fijians were under no compulsion from a cash poll tax to work on European plantation as planters had expected, nor to sell cheaply to traders. Traders wailed piteously when the government put Fijian produce taxes up for highest tender. They appealed to Downing Street against its tyrannous systems enslaving the poor Fijians, but they paid up at prices which ensured cash refunds to the enslaved. And so there was money in Fijian hands during what Ratusukuna came to think of as the golden days of his youth. Churches were built too many of them for his taste in that Moto Gerard style so dear to Fijian Methodism. Cutters and the occasional schooner lay at anchor off main centers, and pretty well every coastal village had at least a whale boat. From provincial vessels and his father's own cutter, Julia, Ratusukuna as a child saw islands he described as manlike, stumpy, ominous, camel-backed Nangani, and the greenish-blue mountains and pinnacles of Ovalau and curled up at their feet out of respect or in awe, Motoriki with its yellowish-green and blue hills. Men could not live on beauty alone, but he thought his people lived pretty well on their modified Stone Age economy. Politically, too, they were as well off as any colonial people could reasonably expect. At the dawn of the century, fortified by his Bible from which he obtained comfort for many of his acts and for his belief in tribal law and custom, enjoying in Namata, the government monthly publication, news he could readily absorb, the Fijian naturally had his being in his group and clan, living in a familiar atmosphere of custom and rites, superstition and witchcraft, legends and myths, 
Despite contacts over a period of 100 years with missionaries and traders, government officials and beachcombers, he was governed as he wanted to be by heads of families or chiefs who shared his faith and lived his life, a few of them high dignitaries who were distinguished leaders before session. Most years, the Council of Chiefs met to discuss the requirements of the land, often saying hard things but always confident that Fijian affairs were government's central concern. True, Europeans alone had seats in Legislative Council, but they were nominated members, outvoted by the officials, and the white community at large was dwindling. Big sugar interests from Australia were deeply involved in the colony, but thus far had served agreeably to pay Fijians rent and crush their cane. Similarly, if there was a rising Indian indentured population, corollary of government's determination that Fijians should work for themselves rather than on Europeans' plantations, then Fijians had Thurston's word for it that the strangers were only a working population with no prospect of political rights. Secure childhood days then, they were days of acceptable rule for Ratusukuna's people. He was ever afterwards convinced. An age which he told Legislative Council ended in 1897 with the death of Nakena Vai. It was true that at the last Council of Chiefs where his father Ratumandrewiwi was ever to meet Thurston in 1895, the governor was pallid from putting down a revolt at Senganga in the highlands of Vanua Levu. However, this was no rejection of the native policy, but rather an affirmation of the ancient values the policy sought to accommodate. Senganga was attempting to play politics in the old-fashioned way, lightening the burden of carrying taxes to the coast by claiming legitimate allegiance to Thakonrove rather than Madhuata. Very much in the old way again, chiefs were maneuvering for precedence. Under the chiefly rule which the administration reinforced, it was true that the final sanction had always been club and fire stick. There was really little choice if the land was to leave at peace, because to put in a commoner as Mbuli was to cause intolerable tension, while even native magistrates functioned better if they had personal rank. Chiefs had been assassinated often enough in the past, but as a rule by their half-brothers, uncles, cousins or sons, rather than their common subjects, and they had ruled by the strong hand, Nalinga Nganga. In post-session days, force was replaced by Fijian regulations, which provided fines or imprisonment for disobedience. Men were, in theory, compelled by law to be home-loving and industrious, to plant a given amount of yam and taro, and were forbidden to leave their districts for more than 60 days without permission from their mbuli. This was slavery to conventional and interested European eyes. It was contrary to the spirit of the pushing, go-ahead, individualistic age, worse than medieval. And constant grumbling was the hallmark and safety valve of the Leoni Vanua, although they could be readily mobilized by leaders whose legitimacy was sanctioned by dissent and proved by the fruitfulness of the land. Even while Ratusukuna was growing up in Ra, 
the inland parts of the province around the Kauvandra mountain range saw the revival of Tukka with its tradition of opposition to authority. In Nakauvandra dwelt the Kalovu or creator god, Dengei, who with Ndakuanga is probably the most powerful of all Vu, coiled within his cave like a serpent, and there, before they quarreled with him, his nephews had lived, the twins Nadirikaumoli and Nakausambaria, whom the fertile mind of the hereditary priest Ndungumoi, styled Navosavakandua, he who speaks but once, identified with Jehovah and Christ. The imminent return of the twins would mean enormous material gain along with eternal life for their votaries, the Mbaitambua or sacred fence, so Navosavakandua promised, and a grim end for those in authority. At an invocation to the twins in 1891, one litany breathed over the Yangona ran, a prayer for those who hold government appointments, that they may be punished at the day of judgment, whether they be magistrates or bullies, may they be turned into pillars of salt. So the Vu were invited to use Old Testament punishments. Navosavakandua himself was in exile on Rotuma by then, having been arrested by Ratusukuna's father. As a coastal chief with traditionally no more love for Tuka than any European official could feel, he experienced no crisis of identity in dealing with the prophet. Ratumandraiwiwi's mother's half-brother, Ratudakambau, had, after all, ordered the execution of Navosavakandua's father. When Ratusukuna walked the coastal track from Nanukuloa to stay with his father's friend, Charles Wimbledon Thomas, who ran cattle at Nangara Station, he played with a club called Singa Mai Labalaba, which had been carried by another shaman forebear of Navosavakandua in 1873 at the Mbawan siege of Wai, a town on the edge of Nakauvandra. Nakorowaiwai people had murdered a labor recruiter from Bau, Juan Koroi Sukuna, a warrior of Ratu Sukuna's namesake by the prefix, and had refused to sorrow, that is, to plead for forgiveness. As Ratu Sukuna told the sequel from local tradition, when the villagers gazed at the forces as they were being drawn up for battle, the pagan priest of the village, instead of telling the people to bolt for life, ordered them to line up and sit down on the village green and watch him catch bullets as they were fired. At the first volley, the priest was hit and the troops entered Nakorwaiwai to slaughter left and right. Only two small boys escaped unhurt out of a village population of over 400 souls. At home in Nanukuloa, in the house of the Talatala, or Wesleyan preacher, where a young visitor was learning to quote scripture for unscriptural ends, the growing Ratusukuna encountered his own generation's counterparts of Navosavakandua. This was Apolosi R. Nawai from Navewa in Nandi, who was to attempt to lead Fijians into a dimly perceived commercial age. In 1945, when Ratu Sukuna was Talai and Apolosi a not wholly discredited visionary, 
that Talai paid the Prophet the compliment of conducting him personally into exile on Yavata. Apelosi went, lamenting his lack of the education that would have enabled him to fulfill his dream of individualistic, commercially-minded Fijians competing with Indians and Europeans on their own terms. A little man, very dark, not well-dressed, traveling with the immaculate Ratusukuna, who had always declined to put his own savoir faire at Apollosi's disposal. The Talai owed his education to his father, who believed in European-style training well beyond what the colony provided, even for Europeans. For Ratusukuna, trailblazer for all his well-educated children, Ratumandrewiwi found a tutor, one Charles Andrew. He was an Oxford graduate, ordained in Anglican orders, an aged man down on his luck with a fondness for drink. He was rather a funny character, Ratusukuna recalled from the vantage point of a man of 25. Originally, he belonged to the Church of England. He crossed over to the Church of Rome and then chopped back again to the Church of England. In later years, Mr. Andrew ran a little school near Rakiraki, under the patronage of another of Ratumandraiwiwi's non-Fijian friends, Badri Maharaj. This was one of the first Indian indentured laborers to make good in Fiji. In 1921, he was nominated to Legislative Council, the first Indian to sit there. Mr. Andrew's memorial today is an iron cross on a knoll behind the Rakiraki Hotel, but until his star people died in 1958, it was a voice issuing from a deadpan Fijian countenance between unwavering eyes and a massively dipped chin, a voice which struck the warden of Wadham College, Oxford, as having all the purity of accent and intonation of an early Victorian lady. Less perceptive people used to call Ratusukuna's accent Oxford. It was actually the bell-like tones of standard Southern English, as though he had studied diction with the royal family. He had to work hard for his English and his mannered prose style because Mr. Andrew was short on patience. At Nanukuloa, they remember the old gentleman's being stoned by outraged village boys for beating the young chief in public. There was no softness for Ratusukuna in his father's house either. Adaptive man of the new age though Ratumandraiwiwi was, with glass in his windows and books on his table, he maintained the distance of the traditional Fijian father. And even before Charles Andrew appeared, Ratusukuna had been accustomed to hang by his arms from the rafters in the house of his previous teacher, the Talatala, for getting his numbers wrong. He bore a grudge. If he really did tell the stories, he is said to have told his comrades in arms in the First World War trenches. Stories of how he ran away from home at the age of 10 and lived for four years among fishermen until the British sent him off to be educated, fearing that, as a prince, he would later stir up trouble. Whether the fantasy was Ratusukuna's or his American interlocutors is not clear. While the latter would seem a more likely candidate, he surely had something to feed on. When he had a household of his own, though, Ratusukuna, widely traveled by then, 
Oxford graduate, war hero, barrister, frequent guest at Government House, maintained within his walls and family all and more of the reserve he had experienced from Ratu Mandraiwiwi. As oldest son he was, after all, Ratambu, sacred blood. He maintained other things too, some of his Fijian people came to believe. His power in the land eventually looked more than mortal. And with that Manchian habit of mind, which enables a nation of fervent churchgoers to believe steadfastly in a Fijian spirit world, Ratusukuna was said to keep in his house a room for Andi Sovanatambua, sister of the Kalovu from Nakauvandra. Vandra.